You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm Dylan Matthews. And today we're bringing you the second episode in our series, America's Public Health Experiment. The focus of this week's episode are two agencies that went from quietly to loudly broken during the pandemic and still haven't recovered the United States Postal Service, and the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. For that, we turn to WEED's co-host, Dara Lind. The federal government's COVID experiment wasn't limited to the parts of the government tasked with COVID response. The United States was also an employer, so federal agencies had to adjust to essential workers only, Zoom call meetings, hand sanitizer stations, what we now call the new normal. And as an institution, it had to respond to the changes everyone else was making in adjusting to that new normal. Most of the federal government weathered 2020 fairly well under the circumstances. But around late summer 2020, it became clear that at least two had very much not. You remember this from mid-August? Facing fierce scrutiny over mail delays, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy tonight announcing the Postal Service is suspending operational changes until after the November election to, quote, avoid even the appearance of any impact on election mail. At the same time, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, the agency responsible for approving immigration and visitor visa applications, was just barely averting an existential crisis of its own. Despite our best efforts, we have been forced to issue furlough notices to nearly 70% of our employees. Without funding from Congress, we will have no choice but to proceed with large-scale furloughs on August 30th. But in late August, the agency suddenly changed its tune. It had found enough money and made enough cuts to stay afloat. That said, the episode, and the continued delays to basic functioning at the agency, raise serious questions about what happened and whether the crisis has really passed. What struck me about USPS and USCIS is that they're both weird agencies funding-wise. Instead of being funded by Congress with appropriated taxpayer money, they're both overwhelmingly fee-funded. The revenues they take in from users whenever somebody mails a priority mail package or files a naturalization application are supposed to cover their budgets. And in both cases, the 2020 crises highlighted that the agencies had been broken for quite some time partly due to policy decisions, but also due to a simple disconnect between the services they were expected to provide and the income they were able to generate. So if we're talking about crisis-proofing the federal government for the next pandemic or other sudden shock, and for Pete's sake, if we're not, we probably should be, we have to think about agencies that don't rely on Congress to shovel them money. How do you build in crisis-proof cushioning for an agency that can only, in theory, spend what it takes in? To dig into why USPS and USCIS broke so spectacularly during the pandemic, I talked to people who've been watching the crises unfold. First up, the reporter whose work I relied on as a reader last year to help me understand what the hell was happening at the Postal Service, Jacob Bogage of The Washington Post. Jacob, thank you very much for coming onto the weeds. I'm thrilled to be here. (laughs) It's, uh, I was following your USPS coverage through 2020 and it was extremely helpful to have somebody who actually was willing to talk about an agency in its context, which is what I'm hoping to to get into with you here. Can we maybe kind of start out of the context of the coronavirus and talk about why does it matter to have a functioning post office? Historically, and this is where the Postal Service kind of draws its entire mandate, right? The Postal Service is older than the country itself. It's founded in 1775, but there was also a colonial Postal Service. It was key to the concept of Western democracy, the idea that Western democracy is reliant upon 
an informed and communicated citizenry? And how are you going to do that uh, if not being able to send mail back and forth to each other? The first postmaster general is Benjamin Franklin. He's also a printer and a newspaper publisher. And one of the main reasons we had a postal service was to send newspapers around the country so folks could be informed and participate in their government. Modern day, why do we need a postal service? Because we still do a lot of things through the mail. There are still a lot of people who pay their bills through the mail, who get their paychecks through the mail, who communicate to one another through the mail. Businesses rely on it not just to ship their products and their bills, but to advertise. Think about all the Bed Bath & Beyond and Mr. Tire and local pizza shop coupons that you get in the mail. Those are really important to those businesses. It also is part of this country's critical infrastructure. This is the only branch of government that is literally in every community in the country that goes to everybody's door six days a week. That's a unique proposition for federal government. And so the, the importance of the Postal Service is it, it, it tries to talk about itself for the most part now in a business-like context to serve customers and to serve uh, different business clients. But on the grand scheme of things, it still draws its mandate from its earliest days as part of making sure uh, we all can participate in our government and that the government continues to have a role in our lives. I'm so glad that you have like already brought up the tension between the way the Postal Service talks about itself now as this like consumer-focused business-style organization and its role as kind of a like epitome of a government agency or the epitome of a public service where it's serving everybody because that's another kind of weird thing and I think very relevant to what we're going to be talking about, what you know happened in 2020, which is that the Postal Service is a fee-funded agency. Can you talk about what makes the its revenue model different from just getting an appropriation from Congress every year and what that means for the agency? Yeah. So when we talk about the Department of Defense or the Department of Commerce or pretty much any other federal agency, they get money because we pay taxes. And then Congress goes, oh, it would be a good idea to have a Department of Defense. Let's give them a bunch of money from our taxes. This is literally what we pay taxes for. It'd be a good idea to have roads or bridges. Let's give the folks who make them money so we can have roads and bridges. The Postal Service is not like that. The Postal Service makes money because you and I buy and use postage products. We send and receive mail. We send and receive packages. When we do that, the Postal Service makes money. Why is the Postal Service struggling financially? Because we all send a lot less mail. And so the less mail that we send, the less money the Postal Service has to make ends meet. And that is kind of the central tension. I mean, think about in, in 2008, and I just pulled these numbers up in front of me. In 2008, the American people sent 92 billion pieces of first-class mail, which is, you know, any pretty much anything that comes in an envelope has a stamp on it. In 2020, we sent 53 billion, right? That's nearly half of its, very rough math, nearly half of its volume gone out the door, and it's not coming back. So, that is the central tension and what separates the Postal Service from pretty much any other government agency. You're talking about something that obviously like started a long, a long time ago in terms of the, tr the downward trend in mail. Can you describe what the situation looked like in USPS in, say, January 2020, like on the eve of the coronavirus when this wasn't necessarily a national news story? How functional was this agency? So January 2020, let's kind of set the scene here. Great. The Postal Service has already started preparing for the coronavirus, but it really hasn't started preparing yet from a business standpoint, only kind of from a taking care of our workers standpoint, which I think is kind of where most businesses were in January 2020. The Postmaster General, Megan Brennan, has announced her retirement. She's on her way out, and the Board of Governors, which is a nine-member board that serves like the Postal Service's Board of Directors, is actively looking for her replacement, but hasn't really made a whole lot of progress. Mail volume is declining, but not out of place with previous years. 
So it's going to be a tough year financially for the Postal Service, but they've been dealing with tough years for a long time now. And what really matters to the Postal Service is having cash on hand because their payroll is $2 billion every other week and they've got to make ends meet. And if volume remains consistent, they have enough cash on hand to get through the year. Then the coronavirus hits. They do some modeling about what it's going to mean for their business. And they come up in March and April with a really dire scenario. They say, we have maybe three months of cash left on hand. And if we don't pay our bills, which, by the way, they never pay their bills. If we don't pay our bills, we could make it till October. And they go to Congress with that, with that, with those numbers and, and say, look, we need help. And in steps the Trump administration at that point and says, oh, you need help, do you? Well, if you want help, you better be ready to raise package prices specifically to target Amazon because Donald Trump had a continuing and personal feud with Amazon and kind of either didn't understand or willfully misunderstood the role Amazon plays in the Postal Service's business. They make demands, and by they I mean Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, makes demands on the Board of Governors to play an active role in approving the hire for Postmaster General. And in May, well, I should say in, in April and May, Louis DeJoy comes out of the woodwork as a candidate for this role. He is uh, a major donor to the Republican Party. He is the finance chair of the Republican National Convention, which is taking place in Charlotte that year. He's hosted fundraisers for Donald Trump at his mansion in Greensboro, North Carolina. And he's a former supply chain logistics executive whose business did a lot of contracting work with the Postal Service. So he did have some experience, if not with the mail itself, then with the Postal Service as an agency. And very quickly, he sails through the hiring process and is named Megan Brennan's successor. So I'd like to kind of stop and like and and look at the kind of Trumpness of it all a little bit, right? Because obviously, like it's impossible to separate the U.S. coronavirus response from what, you know, from from like general Trump administration stuff in general. And I would never ask you to like run a counterfactual on this. But, you know, with the Postal Service in particular, there's been a longstanding trope of Republicans um, and, you know, like centrist Democrats using it as an example of government being less efficient than the private sector anyway, of kind of, you know, government not serving people in the way it promises to. What in your like in your analysis is the difference between what a typical Republican administration has treated the Postal Service as and how the Trump administration treated the Postal Service? Well, let's look at the last Republican administration before Donald Trump, which is George W. Bush. The biggest thing that George W. Bush does with the Postal Service is give it more financial obligations. Granted, this is 2006. Our communication ecosystem is very different. But the Postal Service in 2006 is making a lot of money, and the president doesn't want some of these workforce expenses, like retiree health care, on the federal government's books. So he gives it to the Postal Service. And this is something that sails through Congress with both Democratic and Republican support that basically says the Postal Service is making a lot of money we, the federal government, we, the taxpayers, shouldn't be taking on that expense. The Postal Service can afford it. Let USPS take care of it. And that was considered a really good idea at the time. Why? Because there was this kind of universal acceptance of the fact that the Postal Service is here, that it's important, that people use it, that we could have disagreements about the kind of services it offers, but we don't want to get rid of the thing. And People throw around the idea of privatizing the Postal Service, but it, in no world is that realistic. And so not only are we going to let this thing run its course and, and not really involve it in politics, we're going to give it more financial obligations because ostensibly we believe in it. Now, that 2006 law, and again, this podcast is called The Weeds, so I can go in the weeds. 
It's yes. called. <laughs> Give it to us. It's called the Postal Accountability Enhancement Act, or uh, as postal nerds say, Paella. Uh, <laughs> and that has become kind of the central policy debate on postal reform these days. Because without Paella, the Postal Service doesn't have to pay $5 billion a year, set aside that money into account into an account that it can't touch to pre-fund all of its retirees' health care costs, which no other federal agency does. No one in their right mind would do that. But the Postal Service does it because mail work is physically taxing, people have long careers, it's unionized work. It's worth it to sock that money aside, potentially. But they just do it in a much more forward-facing, I don't know what the right term is, screwball way than most anyone else would do it. And because of that, on paper, it's got a lot of debt that it cannot and will never pay. I mean, we're talking about $206 billion in debt for a business that's losing in the neighborhood of 4 to $10 billion every year. So they're never going to pay that back. They know they're never going to pay that back. And that has become kind of the central debate about uh, postal policy in recent years. But you asked about how was the Trumpian take on the Postal Service different than previous administrations. I think thematically, Paella and the Bush administration is a good place to look because it, it pointed to the Postal Service being nonpartisan and routine and a matter of course. And sure, there were disagreements because FedEx and UPS like wanted more market share and didn't want to compete with Uncle Sam on package services. But that was like happening in some weird corner of Washington that like you and I didn't necessarily have to pay attention to. Average Joe citizen is not paying attention to that. And that's because the Postal Service, we take it for granted. And like, why shouldn't we? Because it's been around forever and it performs a basic service. And there aren't real policy debates about getting rid of it. So... With all of that in background, Louis DeJoy takes over the USPS. Tell us what happens next. Louis DeJoy takes over the Postal Service and immediately is the target of suspicion because of the Trump administration's involvement in getting him that job. That's not necessarily Louis DeJoy's fault that the Trump administration decides it wants to play politics with the nation's mail service in the middle of a global pandemic that has killed nearly 800,000 people at this point. But that's where he ends up. And he doesn't help his cause because within three weeks of taking office, he sends down orders from his office to the field that says, we're going to change the way we handle mail. We're going to leave mail behind. If it doesn't show up on time to get it on the trucks, it's going to sit in a loading dock. There's even a memo that says, this is going to disturb some people. It's going to be weird to see this. The Postal Service runs on this mantra of every piece every day that they were not going to do that for like the first time in a long time. They were going to leave mail behind. Um, they weren't going to work as many overtime hours. And the Postal Service is chronically understaffed, runs on overtime hours. And they were going to do all of these things as it's becoming increasingly clear a lot of Americans are going to vote by mail. That there will be entire states who will conduct their elections and communicate with voters all by mail because, again, we're in the middle of a global pandemic that has killed, at this point, nearly 800,000 people. So from the perspective of the people who rely on the Postal Service most, what does this look like from their end? So when we talk about the people who rely on the Postal Service most, we're talking about a, a few different groups. One, we're talking about seniors um, and veterans, and I'm lumping them together because the big issue there is benefits checks and prescription medications. Most Social Security checks aren't mailed anymore, but there are other types that are. Those are getting held up in the mail stream. They're getting held up in the mail stream in the middle of this pandemic, which has caused an economic downturn that has a material effect on people's abilities to make ends meet. We're talking about prescription medication. Again, if, that, if that's late, you're screwed if you need that prescription. I would talk to pharmacists on the phone who would say, yeah, I have clients that come in and they say, my prescription's supposed to get to me through the mail. 
it's two weeks late or it's however many weeks late and I'm out of pills. Can you fill me for a week so I can give it another week for this prescription to come in? Another group of small businesses who are sending out invoices, who are expecting to get payments back from clients, who are shipping product to consumers, that's huge. I mean, we, t- we talk about the, the supply chain crisis right now and ships sitting in harbors and needing to be unloaded and shipping containers and everything. I don't know if these are completely related in, in, in terms of market uh, effect, but in terms of the effect it had on consumers, you can trace a lot of the tension that we as consumers feel about our supply chain crisis to the postal crisis of 2020, where things are getting held up in the mail and they're not coming in on time. And by the way, we are afraid to leave our house to go get them ourselves. And then the third part is voters. Half of all ballots in the 2020 presidential election, roughly half, are submitted through the mail. So everybody becomes reliant on the mail. And, and, we're, and it's not just the ballot submissions that are important there. It is voter registration materials. It's ballot applications. It is official information about the location of voting places and drop boxes. It, it's all of these things to help us navigate an election season like one we've never seen before. And, and that third area is the one that kind of becomes my focus as I'm reporting this and the most politically fraught because the president of the United States at the time actively takes measures to make it more difficult for people to vote and to try to stop the Postal Service, which, by the way, one of his political donors is running, from being able to facilitate that election. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the kind of way the 2020 election was hanging over all of this, because it seems that that was very crucial to when this stopped being a, like, oh, there are a lot of things that are operating in in a slightly wonky fashion due to the coronavirus and became an actual issue of, you know, this arm of the government that needs to function isn't functioning anymore. So how did the kind of future of democracy conversation affect, you know, the Postal Service's response over these months? I want to separate the Postal Service, you know, with the headquarters of the Postal Service in Lafont Plaza in, in Washington, D.C., from your neighborhood post office or the postal worker you see in your, you know, in your neck of the woods or the processing plant in your town. Because those are different things. On the ground, there is a swell of support for postal workers. I mean, there's a Saturday Night Live skit about Adele asking all of her friends for her birthday to buy stamps. For example, I can see you on your birthday and you're very happy. You get everything you ask for. I do? What do I ask for? Stamps. (laughs) You ask everyone in your life to buy stamps. And they do. They all buy the stamps. And you say, take that, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. There are letter-writing campaigns to inject more mail volume so that the uh, Postal Service leadership backtracks on their service cuts. And, And then there is the response from headquarters, which is doubling down and takes on, wittingly or unwittingly, even more of this um, air of Trump cronyism. How how do we get out of that? Like, obviously, a few things have happened in the, you know, between, like, in, in sure, the last, sure, say, sure, sure. year or 14 months, uh, one of which has been the, you know, replacement of President Trump with President Biden. Another has been, you know, several changes in, in the trajectory of the pandemic. But, like, when did the Postal Service stop being a cri- like in crisis and democracy in crisis with it? Or has it not even, cha- you know, has, has it not even emerged from that p- phase yet? So I'm going to do my favorite thing again, which is take these things apart, right? Yes. Um, I always ask two questions at once, so thank no, you. No, that's okay. To the larger question of has the Postal Service emerged from crisis and has that crisis and, and issues facing our democracy lessened? No. Right? No, they haven't. The Postal Service 
is still running out of money, maybe slower than it was previously, and maybe it's getting a little more support from Congress in, in terms of a reform bill that's advancing very slowly, but it, it's definitely still in crisis. Is our democracy still in crisis? I mean, you tell me. In terms of 2020 and how it emerges from that really acute moment of crisis, a lot of that is because other institutions do their job. Congress snaps into uh, action and on August 21st and August 24th, both the Senate and House hold emergency hearings with the Postmaster General saying, what the heck are you doing over there? Days before those hearings, Louis DeJoy rolls back a lot of his changes before the election because he knows he's going to get grilled about it in front of the House and Senate. It's not worth taking all that flack and arousing that kind of suspicion. This is not a pat-on-the-back kind of moment for myself, but for myself and my colleagues in the mainstream American press, that's another institution that is vital to our democracy. And we started paying attention. And, and that sheds light on it. And, you know, I, I do a lot of Freedom of Information Act and open records requests, and you can read in these records the way the Postal Service is responding to the public pressure mounting because of press coverage, because of investigative reporting and saying, is this really worth it? And backing off some of their stances because of it. It's Congress, it is other institutions stepping up. One of those institutions is the federal judiciary. And attorneys general from 20-some states go to federal judges around the country saying, you need to stop this. And in four federal courts, judges enjoin the Postal Service from continuing with these service cuts. The week of the election, Emmett Sullivan, who is now taking senior status, but he's in the District Court of the District of Columbia, holds daily status hearings with the Postal Service, saying, how are you handling ballots? I want fresh numbers in front of me and released to the public every day about how you're handling ballots. I want you to send more resources, and I will order you to send more resources to troublesome areas where service performance isn't as good as it needs to be. On November 3rd, he orders the Postal Service to sweep processing plants in specific areas earlier in the day so they can deliver ballots to uh, vote counters by the uh, deadlines. Because sometimes if vote counters in certain states don't get ballots by the time polls close, they won't count them. So he orders them to do that. The Postal Service defies his order and says, no, we have our own schedule. We're going to stick to it. And he comes on, you know, on November 4th and holds a status hearing with fire and brimstone and threatens to hold Lewis to join contempt. I mean, so there were other institutions that stepped up around the Postal Service. The Postal Service likes to tout this election mail report that says they did a, a fairly good job with delivering ballots, and they did. Is that because they did it by themselves or because they were forced to do it by the federal judiciary and by other institutions that stepped up with oversight responsibility? I think that's an open question. So the election, you know, other institutions say, you know, may have saved the Postal Service from itself. But you mentioned earlier that as far as the kind of revenue situation is concerned, there's still an ongoing and even deepening crisis. What options are on the table for, you know, not just fixing the last crisis, but crisis-proofing the agency for the next time something like this might come around? I think the best place to start there is a fundamental conversation about what we expect from the Postal Service as a federal agency, and then what its responsibilities are under law right now. The Washington Post has done polling on this. And the overwhelming majority of the American people is that the Postal Service should be like any other federal agency that we just pay for it with our taxes. And yeah, you buy stamps, but I don't think anyone out there really thinks the Postal Service is making money off a 58-cent stamp because it's 58 cents. And that sounds ridiculously cheap. And it is ridiculously cheap. The other side to that coin is what's the Postal Service's responsibility under law. And that is to be self-sustaining. By law, it has to pay its own bills. So when we look at the future of the Postal Service and kind of talking about crisis-proofing this thing, 
we as the American people need to make a decision. And by we as the American people, I mean our representatives in Congress need to make a decision. Do we try to ease the financial burden on the Postal Service by relieving some of its debt and and restructuring it so it truly can fund itself as its business fundamentally deteriorates, for lack of a better word? Or do we reconfigure our own conceptions of the Postal Service so we just pay for it? Like we pay for an army, like we pay for roads and bridges, like we pay for hospitals, like we pay for all manner of public goods. Uh, Do we change the way we think about it? And if we do change the way we think about it, this is the liberal argument for why don't we ask the Postal Service to do more things? Why don't we ask the Postal Service to bank? Uh, People are unbanked and underbanked. They need less risky ways of accessing money they already have. Could the federal government be a part of that? And if the federal government's going to be a part of that, why not the Postal Service? The Postal Service is buying 150,000 shiny new mail trucks. And in President Biden's Build Back Better Act, there's $6 billion to make those trucks electric and to buy electric charging stations. Well, if the Postal Service is going to get electric charging stations at every post office in the United States, then what if you and I, Dara, buy electric cars? Can we go charge them at the Postal Service? Can we do that for free? Do we pay a little bit of money to do it? Is that going to help the way our country addresses the climate crisis? You know, we send packages through the Postal Service. What if somebody gift-wrapped a package for me at the counter instead of having to go to Bloomingdale's and buy something from them and then go to the Postal Service and have them wrap it? I mean, so when we talk about changing our conception of the Postal Service to treat it like most other federal government entities— Along those lines comes for if we're going to pay taxes to it, why not ask it to do more stuff? And and, and that's kind of the central tension. Uh, and, and, and before you can ask another question, I, I will give you the other side of that argument, which is the conservative side of that argument, which is, is less about hatred of the Postal Service or wanting to undermine the Postal Service and more about expansion of the federal government. The IRS in 2020 sent a lot of people multiple checks, literally gave them money, right? And yet, people hate the IRS. People hate lots of elements of the federal government because it's the federal government and people have been taught to hate it. People don't hate the Postal Service. It's got the cute little trucks. It's got the cute little mail carrier who goes and checks on your in-laws and makes sure they haven't fallen in their home, right? I mean, this is a very popular agency. And so if you expand the federal government services into banking, if you expand the federal government services into um, electric vehicle charging or or other things that are called, quote-unquote, non-postal activities, then that fundamentally expands the federal government's footprint. And that goes against pretty much everything conservatives hold dear. So... Lay out for me the the alternative option for the future of the Postal Service. If instead of engaging in this radical reconception, it continues to exist as an agency that is expected to, you know, take to to sustain itself and take in what it costs. What does that look like without, you know, like what, what does a functional Postal Service that continues to rely on that model look like? For one, it's got to inspire more use whether that is through packages where it has a little bit more flexibility on how much it charges to keep up with private sector competitors. Also, in, on first-class mail, it just it, it needs to inspire more use of first-class mail. It's got to get me and you to send holiday cards every year. It's got to encourage people to inject, and that's a very technical phrase, inject that volume into the mail system. And and I like to think about, this is a bit of a ham-handed analogy, but I've run it past enough people in industry that I feel confident using it on on this program. You've got to think a little bit about the Postal Service like we think about the Affordable Care Act's universal mandate. And here's what I mean by that. Why does the Affordable Care Act work? It works because of this universal mandate. If everybody has to buy in, it increases competition, it lowers prices for all of us, but it gives service healthcare service providers enough revenue that they know it's not going anywhere and they can sustain their system and provide everybody coverage, right? 
For the Postal Service, the more first-class mail it gets, if it can get a sustainable amount of first-class mail from businesses large and small, from mail houses, from advertisers, it can then support all of its infrastructure so it doesn't have to price gouge folks like me and you. But it also has to survive in a competitive space, not just where it has a mail monopoly. It's got to compete with Amazon and UPS and FedEx, and that's becoming increasingly hard as those businesses very astutely see the Postal Service in crisis and use this moment to build out their own shipping networks and claw back a lot of the services they they offer in-house. So we've just heard what happens when an agency breaks that's supposed to serve everybody. And everybody, from federal judges to Congress to the press, feels a stake in saving it. Thanks again to Jacob Bogage from The Washington Post for talking us through that. When we come back, we're going to talk about what happens and who notices when an agency breaks that only serves a limited number of people, many of whom, by definition, can't even vote. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. And we're back. We just spent the first half of this episode talking about the Postal Service. Now we're switching gears to talk about U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, another agency that the pandemic broke, but which didn't inspire a national outcry. Here with me to help us understand is Jeremy McKinney, the president-elect of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, or AILA. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on The Weeds. Happy to be here. So let's start with, for the edification of people who have not contemplated the uh, turning Friday Weeds into the hour-long podcast, the USCIS Hour with Dara Lind, uh, what exactly is it that U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services does? What is it responsible for in the immigration apparatus? Yeah, it's Simple enough, I I call them the benefits people. Immigration has different tiers to it. Obviously, the one that we hear the most about is is enforcement. That's ICE. When I think about uh, the individuals at the airport or our land ports of entry, that's Customs and Border Protection or CBP. But who provides uh, status in the United States, residency, citizenship? That is USCIS. Those are the benefits people. And how is this agency funded? Like it's, you know, as as we were discussing in the first part of this episode with the U.S. Postal Service, USCIS is similar in that it's not funded purely by congressional appropriations in the way that a lot of federal agencies are, right? Correct. It's not even the majority of its funding does not come from the federal government or from taxpayers. It comes from filing fees. USCIS's asylum adjudications are funded by taxpayers and the federal government, but the balance is uh, funded by filing fees. So when we say that something is funded by filing fees, is it as straightforward as, you know, whatever it costs to process your application is the amount of the check that you're writing when you send it in? Oh, no. Oh, no. Not in terms of CIS filing fees are enormous. And it funds the entire apparatus. And so, for example, if, if one is applying uh, simply for temporary employment authorization, that filing fee is almost $500 just to ask for permission to work for one year. 
what does that mean for the relationship between, you know, like in in non-pandemic, non-Trump times? You know, how do you anticipate how many applications you're going to get in a year and, you know, even do that budgeting? Or is it purely reactionary that like you, you know, fund whatever people you can with the checks you've already gotten? There is uh, a, a record there, a history there upon which adjudicators and, and budget officials can guesstimate uh, the number of applications that will be received in any given year. For example, when the economy is really good, we know that immigration will increase. When the economy is bad, individuals and companies aren't hiring and foreign national workers are not seeking to come to the United States. And so applications go down. And so there's a natural ebb and flow that officials are able to somewhat predict. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, I think they generally get it right. And so, I mean, obviously you kind of mentioned the difference between, say, like a business immigration application or an asylum application. Like the things that drive people to come to the U.S. are very different um, and the resources they have available to them are different. That's something that USCIS is also thinking about when it's setting fees, right? It's not purely a matter of charging every application the same amount of money. Correct. Like uh, an asylum application has no filing fee. Uh, That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Whereas if I'm applying for some type of employment-based status in the United States and I want to get an answer within two weeks, I might be willing to pay $2,500 additional to get that answer within 14 days. And so filing fees are ideally set up uh, to address the benefit that is being pursued. Uh, Now, that balance is not perfect. It is off. Uh, Frankly, when we think about asylum seekers that are renewing their employment authorization, for example, they're paying almost $500. You know, when we think about our dreamers that are applying to renew their DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, that is almost $500. And so regardless of a person's income level. So it is not perfect, but generally it's designed to address the benefit being sought or to be compatible with the benefit being sought. What is the implication of the way that the government expects USCIS to be able to fund itself? Who Who is it saying is responsible for immigrants getting and staying legal in the United States? They are saying literally it is those, the individuals and companies that are seeking the immigration benefit are expected to pay for it. One might even call them customers. <laughs> because they are paying for a service. Uh, as a matter of fact, until 2017, USCIS literally referred to them as customers. Uh, but the previous administration decided to end uh, use of that term while also removing the, the phrase nation of immigrants from CIS's own mission statement. So let's talk about changes under the Trump administration like prior to the pandemic. What did the situation look like at USCIS in, say, January 2020? You had what our association, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, uh, calls the invisible wall. While I think most experts would agree that the Trump administration's attempts to build that wall at the southern border was almost a virtually complete failure because for the most part, it just reinforced existing barriers, cost a lot of money, created environmental disasters, et cetera, et cetera. The previous administration was quite successful in erecting what we call the invisible wall. And what that means is that you put together a set of policies that discourage individuals from immigrating to the United States or even being in the United States temporarily. The Trump administration ended what's called the deference policy. Now, what that means is that if I'm a company and I've sponsored this person in this position and it was approved, when I go to renew that, the previous policy was that you would defer to the prior approval absent some type of evidence that the conditions had changed. 
uh, the Trump administration got rid of that policy. So every application was renewed brand new again, uh, as if there had been no previous application, resulting in excess companies having to pay more for attorneys to prepare an incredibly exhaustive documentation. It takes the adjudicators longer to go through it. Uh, so a really, really bad policy. They created a policy where everyone had to be interviewed for residency, regardless of the routine nature of the case. Uh, so that means an employment application where a person that has been in the United States for literally over a decade would have to have an interview that created a bottleneck at our field offices because those applications could be adjudicated at what we call service centers, kind of like massive immigration factories that process benefits. Instead, everybody's going to the field offices. There was a notice to appear policy. What it says basically is that if we deny your benefit and it looks like you are deportable, we're going to automatically put you into deportation proceedings creating basically panic in the community because if you don't get it right, you could end up in removal. On top of it, the blank space policy. They even at one point for humanitarian benefits like victims of crimes and asylum, if you had blank spaces in the application for stuff that literally was not applicable and you left it blank, they would reject weeks or even months later, the application. Just crazy, crazy policies. Honestly, it honestly set up to fuck with people. I mean, I can't really put it any blunter than that, and it's not very lawyerly of me, but that's really the design. A lot of this stuff sounds like it was creating more work for the USCIS employees themselves who are responsible for reviewing applications, right? By setting more bars for an application, like more boxes that they had to check, more more steps that they had to go through in the back and forth before they could ultimately declare something approved. So they were doing more work for the same amount of money. 100%. And uh, requests for additional evidence and notices of intents to deny those kind of administrative, that type of minutia historic highs. Which is basically like to to explain for people who are who are not immigration lawyers or or me, a couple of ways by which USCIS will tell an applicant, you haven't met your burden to demonstrate that you qualify for this yet, but we're gonna make you, you know, submit some more stuff. We're gonna make you jump through a bunch more hoops and then maybe we'll, you know, we'll approve your application. And there's also at the same time the question of how much, you know, the Trump administration was charging for each application, right? The the other kind of weird fill-up in USCIS funding is that it's set by regulation. So how did the Trump administration's efforts to change that regulation go? They issued a proposed regulation to change the filing fees, but then to add filing fees to things that they had never charged for before, like asylum. Ultimately, those efforts failed and we still have in 2021 the same filing fees that we had years prior. What we were at pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic, was a situation where USCIS had, that should be pointed out, uh, less cases, so less work to do, but because of the lower number of cases, less filing fees, creating a budget problem, and then it was taking the adjudicators not uh, less time to complete, but more time. So they had the same staff, the same size organization with less cases taking longer. So they ended up broke and asking Congress for a bailout. So when they went to Congress, how did they justify needing all of that money when they were supposed to be running on their own revenues to begin with? The Trump administration's rationale made sense in the sense that it needed additional funds to staff up more appropriately so they could move on these applications. So in one sense, its explanation had a foundation. But the point is, is that if you look past uh, just the simple need for additional money to the policies that the administration itself had put into place to create this problem, 
it resulted in organizations like ALA being adamantly opposed to this bailout without some types of conditions on that funding for USCIS to clean up its act. Uh, and so you had ALA and other organizations out there just really pushing back against providing this bailout until CIS reformed itself. The first request for money is made, what, early summer of 2020? And then what happened from, like, how much how much appetite did you guys see in Congress for anyone actually taking this on with or without conditions? The concern at the time was CIS and its uh, director at the time threatening to basically cut benefits and stop processing, uh, basically holding its customers hostage. And so I think that that frightened a lot of Congress. They took that threat seriously uh, because you want to keep the, the system operating. And, and so there was a reluctance to, to have a lot of conditions on the money at the time. But, you know, the, the promised, like, doomsday scenario didn't end up unfolding, right? How did that, like, what happened there, which I understand is something that I am asking partly because I don't know and partly because I think we still don't collectively have all the information. But, like, what do we know about the aversion of the, like, gajillion dollar shortfall that they were projecting? Well, I think that you still saw a strength in terms of applications. We still had a massive surge in in one type of status called H-1B. Congress sets a cap on, on H-1B status, so they limit the number of people that can be H-1B workers. But USCIS still received, uh, I think it was three to four times the number of requests for that status that results in in a lot of money. And most of those cases end up paying premium processing, that $2,500 extra. Uh, And so I think they ended up working through this financially so that the doomsday scenario that uh, Cuccinelli, I believe, uh, was creating at the time did not come to fruition. So essentially, you're saying that they lucked out because the applications that were still strong were the applications for which they could charge enough money to cross-subsidize the rest of the agency? Correct. <laughs> With that kind of aversion of the short of the, you know, imminent fiscal crisis, did things actually begin to improve at USCIS in terms of what like immigrants themselves and lawyers were experiencing in the functioning of the agency? The agency went into the pandemic uh, dysfunctional and broke, but it made some changes to that were good and I hope are here to stay. So, for example, a lot of benefits require applicants to provide fingerprints for background checks. And as the years go by, CIS would ask these applicants to come in over and over to again provide fingerprints when all they really need to do was was pull up the old ones and refresh their security checks. They started doing that during COVID. They allowed interpreters and attorneys to appear telephonically. That made things easier and kept the number of people down in field offices. They allowed you to reproduce original signatures so you didn't have to send a lot of our filing. It's still on paper. It's crazy. And they need original signatures. So during COVID, they said, well, you can get a scanned copy, for example, of a signature. Small thing. And then most importantly, they extended deadlines due to COVID to provide people with more time to respond. So I do want to give the agency credit for that. I want to be fair. Uh, Those are some good changes that were made. Now, Debbie Downer time. The problem is... (laughs) They did not and still have not taken steps to address the fundamental problem, which is that they have less cases that are taking more time. Their customer service is impenetrable. It is almost impossible to get through to a human being. You cannot walk into a field office like you historically could to ask a question or get a form there is a lack of appointments. Those are called InfoPass. It's almost impossible to get an InfoPass appointment. 
when you have to reschedule someone due to COVID or international travel or exposure, we have clunky local reschedule rules for each of the field offices that don't always work. I had a client's residency application denied for not appearing at it at his interview when I had notified in writing the field office that both he and his husband had COVID, active COVID, but they didn't get the email or the written letter and denied his case. And I had to, and they reopened it. I, you know, again, let's be fair, but it resulted in months and months of delay. And we're seeing historic delays, especially with work permits. That's the biggest problem. Work permit application. This is something that, again, I've been doing this for 25 years. This is something that usually could be adjudicated. It takes less than 15 minutes to adjudicate a work permit application. And we are seeing delays of 13 months on applications that used to take three weeks, four weeks, up to 90 days. 90 days was the regulatory maximum. A couple that is married, but their marriage was young. It was new when they, uh, the person received residency. They have to file an application two years later to say, hey, the love boat is still sailing, right? It's a pretty easy thing to adjudicate. Are you together? Or are you not together? Uh, you know, if you're not together, it might take a little more time. But if you are together, probably not going to take a lot of time to adjudicate. 24 months. 24, two years to adjudicate that application. It's crazy. I, I, again, 25 years of doing this, I have never seen processing delays like that. I want to talk a little because the way that you frame the problem in a way that a lot of uh, outside observers you know, who were already skeptical of the Trump administration framed the problem in 2020 was that this wasn't just a like surprise COVID shock to the system, that this had been not only anticipate, like not only something the Trump administration could anticipate, but the logical consequence of all their policies. And now when, you know, obviously not all of Trump's immigration policies have been reversed, but some of the USCIS procedural stuff you're talking about, like the no blank spaces policy, like the standards for, uh, you know, making it more frequent that people get asked for requests for more evidence, that kind of thing, like those have been reversed. So the fact that we're still dealing with these unprecedented delays, does that indicate that there wasn't as direct a line between what the Trump administration did before the pandemic and the functioning crunch now? Or are we still dealing with the long-term effects of something that, you know, really took the agency to a, like, totally new level of dysfunction? Dara, I totally think it is the latter. You cannot move a vessel of this size and, and change its course quickly. It takes time. Not to mention the fact that almost the entirety of the agency is composed of what are supposed to be nonpartisan professionals. But as we know, uh, the last administration stocked the agencies full of people that might on the outside seem nonpartisan, but that are heavily partisan and have a very specific worldview. That is going to take a while uh, to work itself out. And so the fact is that, you know, we've only had Joe Biden since January. We have only had a, uh, a Senate confirmed CIS director for four months ish. Uh, and so it is going to take time, but adjudicating simple things like work permits, I don't have an excuse for the Biden administration or this current CIS, it is ridiculous. It takes no time to adjudicate that application. And there are even a couple of categories where you shouldn't even need a work permit. That is something that can be fixed and should be fixed now. And I'm hoping that new agency leadership will, will, will fix it and fix it soon. Well, I understand that, you know, Ella has made has been making plenty of like recommendations for just oversight and house cleaning and that sort of thing that 
it thinks will fix, you know, will will certainly ameliorate the problem. Do you think that those are sufficient to really crisis proof the agency or does more, you know, does something more fundamental than just like it sounds like you're talking about kind of the equivalent of waste, fraud and abuse. Right. If you could only get this agency to work better, then you wouldn't necessarily have any of these problems. Do you think that that is sufficient or do you think that that there is going to need to be a bigger rethinking in order to prevent another kind of budget crunch? I do think that filing fees need to be revisited just in terms of uh, the number of applications in certain areas of our world of immigration. That needs to be revisited and and thought about for uh, inflation. Uh, The availability of premium processing for different types of applications should be looked at. So there is a space for additional funding, but the reforms that AILA has been recommending do not require additional money. And so that's why if you just throw money at the problem without reforming it, you still have a dysfunctional agency. Do you think that USCIS can continue to operate as a fee-funded agency without pushing those fees onto immigrants or trying to engage in increasingly complicated cross-subsidies so that the people who are most vulnerable don't necessarily need to pay the full brunt of the agency's operating cost? I think that if you have a fair and aggressive fee waiver process, and that there is a process for individuals to request waivers of those filing fees, I think that having the agency as uh, supported by its customers uh, and paid for by its customers is generally a good thing. Uh, and the prime example uh, is the government shutdown. I, I have to say, honestly, entertains me, uh, is that at one point we had a government shutdown over immigration during the Trump administration. Okay, so what shut down? Our immigration court shut down, ICE shut down, everything but its most essential operations. What continued along? The benefits people. So if you're really opposed to legal immigration in this country, uh, you're not going to be too happy during a shutdown when enforcement is suspended, but benefits keep rolling in. And so the concept that the, the customers, the companies that want the workers, the family members that want to sponsor individuals, and, and the other individuals that are seeking to immigrate to the United States outside of asylees and refugees should pay for that process. I don't have a problem with that. It, ha- it needs to be fair. and We always have to look on how to get that balance right. But fundamentally, I like that system as opposed to it being taxpayer funded. I guess I kind of want to end by asking, like, since this is obviously so tied in with like what had happened pre prior to the pandemic, it's really hard to run counterfactuals. But Do you think that a standard USCIS under a non-Trump president would have run into any problems at all during COVID or at least like not no problems, but like that it would have run into the magnitude of problems that we saw or anything close to it? Or was this like another way of putting this is, is there anything that the agency needs to learn going forward about how to respond to a kind of sudden you know, change of events that is different from what it needs to learn about getting out of the Trump era? Absolutely. So if any agency going into a international pandemic is going to suffer. So some applications require in-person service, naturalization being chief among them. Naturalization requires an in-person interview and an oath ceremony that again takes place in person. We had literally months of those interviews not happening and, in, and individuals not becoming U.S. citizens through no fault of the applicant or the agency. It was the pandemic. And so the agency, when it began to wake up and start providing in-person services again, even then it was limited. And to some extent, they're still limited. And so there's a lot of catch up to play. And I don't know how any administration could sail through that without any major issue. It's a challenge. The problem specifically with CIS is that it was dysfunctional and broke going into it. 
Thank you so much, Jeremy, for coming and indulging uh, my desire to talk about the operational details of USCIS <laughs> all the time. Uh, it's been great to have you on. No problem at all. Thanks. I wanted to close by pointing out one more key difference between these stories. USPS is in direct competition with private business on the mail delivery front, and that shapes both sides of the discussion of its future, both conservatives who think it's increasingly irrelevant and progressives who want to push it to do things UPS and FedEx won't do. But by definition, private companies are never going to edge in on the business of allowing immigrants into the United States. So the question facing USCIS's future is completely different. It's a question of accountability for all that power. If it doesn't have to compete, and it also doesn't have to ask Congress for money, who can make sure it's working as well as it can? That's all for us today. Thanks to Jacob Bogage of The Washington Post and Jeremy McKinney of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dara Lind, the incoming author of the Weeds newsletter, which if you are not already subscribed to by email, you should absolutely make sure to do that at vox.com slash weedsletter. And we will be back in your feeds on Tuesday. See you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.